secrets of the Christian life is the joy of Christian service. It is an amazing joy. Um, uh, I've, I've never heard anybody in their Christian walk look back and go, you know what I wish I could take back is all those hours of service I gave the kingdom because it just feels wasted. I've never heard anybody say anything like that. So, um, anyway, thank you uh, for, for that. Well, um, we are in the, the book of Zechariah. Um, we are going to finish today. Um, so uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but we can't cover it all. So I'm trying to pick out the highlights so we can uh, finish this today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn in Zechariah. You can go to chapter 12. And I'm going to read for some from chapter 12, a little from 13, a little from 14. And we'll walk through those together and ask the Lord to bless that. So uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come up against Jerusalem. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. Then go down to verse or chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Verse 2, And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And if you'll go ahead and turn to chapter 14, uh, go down to verse 8. On that day, you can hear this continued, On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one and his name one. And then go all the way down to the bottom of chapter 14. This is the last, these are the last two verses in the whole book. Verse 20 and 21. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for help. We ask for help as we come to Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would help us to lean into Your Word because we trust it. Lord, we pray that You would help us not see these as words merely scribed down over 2,000 years ago. Uh, but Lord, help us to see these as, living, as the living and active Word of God. 
Lord, I just pray that by your spirit, you would speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray that we would see that salvation comes as a promise of God. Lord, I pray that we would see that there's provision that comes as a promise of God. And Lord, I pray that we will see that there is sanctification, transformation that comes as a promise of God. I pray that You would use that in our lives as You see fit. And Lord, You'd use that in the life of this church, in the life of Your kingdom as You see fit. Lord, we ask Your help. We trust You. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, as we've walked through the book of Zechariah, and, and we have, we've walked through, uh, we, we've looked at various themes. Um, and remember, you're looking at one of the final books penned in the Old Testament. So one of the big things to understanding the book of Zechariah is remembering where you are. So a big picture timeline, I always, always uh, think a big picture timeline is a, is a real helpful thing. One of the best ways to get your bearings in the Scripture is start with this. If you start with Jesus and you go 2,000 years forward, you're going to get to about where we are. So picture that. Jesus is here. 2,000 years on the other side is about where we are. The nice thing about that is if you go 2,000 years the other way, you're going to get a good bearing because that's about where Abraham is. So we've got 2,000 years the other way. So that's about 2,000 B.C. And then here's one of the nice things about the way that most of the history of the Old Testament works out. It's pretty much in half-century chunks after that. About 500 years chunks. So if you go from 2,000 to when Abraham was to 1,500, you're right around the time of the Exodus, roughly. And then, and that's a major event in the Old Testament. They come out of Egypt, and then Moses leads them in. Eventually, they'll get to the Promised Land. So that's around 1,500. 1450, but we'll say 1500. You go 500 years uh, forward again. You're around somewhere around 1000 BC. You're now at the point of when David is king. So you're at the United Kingdom, United Monarchy of the people of Israel. A major point. And then you go 500 years again, and you are at the point where that kingdom is fallen because the people were disobedient, they didn't listen, and they get kicked out of the land, and they're taken exile into another land, namely Babylon, right? And it is after that, it is after that experience, they're there for around a century, that they begin to come back down into the land, and that's where the book of Zechariah lands us. So if you're walking in Old Testament history, you start at 2000 with Abraham, I mean, we're moving pretty close to where the New Testament is at this time. And remember, the people returned to the land, and you would think there would be a ton of celebration, we're back, etc. It was really the opposite. Because when they returned, they saw a city that had fallen, a temple that had fallen, and they were discouraged as they looked at what once was great Jerusalem 500 years before with David. And they looked, and it looked nothing like that. The question in the book of Zechariah is this. Is there a second chance for messed up people? And the answer is clear in the book of Zechariah. Yahweh says, I am the God of second chances. I am the God of second chances. And it's incredibly clear there is going to be a hope and a joy for the people of Israel. Namely, it's going to come in whom? Jesus Christ. And we've already seen Him all the way through it. 
It's interesting. I think the struggle that you and I have with reading Zechariah and applying it to our lives is actually no different than the people of Zechariah had with hearing Zechariah and applying it to their lives. That is, for them, their real felt needs, the ones that they felt like perceived as their needs were the fact that their homes needed to be rebuilt, their cities needed to be rebuilt, their families were strewn about. That's what they felt like their needs were. And yet over and over again, that's not what God is addressing. God is addressing big picture things. And He's telling them about other needs. And He's telling them about things that are going to happen thousands of years later. And you can imagine on the part of the people, there's a certain anxiety of saying, but what about now? But that's where God is so good. And that's where we have to remember. When we come to the Word of God, we come to an eternal God. He sees our lives across the spectrum of eternity. And when He looks in, He says, I'm going to address your biggest needs. I'm not going to let the small ones go. He said, you have much bigger needs even though you don't even realize it. One of my... Uh, Heather, my, this probably says something sick about us. I don't know. But um, I'm going to include Heather here so it's at least two of us. Um, but uh, Heather and I, one of our favorite movie quotes... There's a, a, a fairly large actor who's standing with his very clever, skinny friend and he has a suit on and he says, does this suit make me look fat? And his friend says, no, 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 the suit doesn't, but your face sure does. Um, and uh, I, Heather has often used that quote. Actually, now I think about it, it's only used towards me. Maybe I should rethink this. But anyway, um, this, is, this is really though, on a certain level, there's a certain way... That's us before God. We're coming going, does this make me look bad? Could you solve this problem? And God's going, that, that's not even it. There's much bigger, there are much bigger problems that need to be solved. And that's what you're going to see here when we look at Zechariah. We have bigger needs than we want to admit. But praise God, we've got a God who is big enough to satisfy all of those needs. Look at Zechariah. Chapter 12, verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. So He is going to give what? Salvation. So when they're wanting their homes rebuilt, and the city rebuilt, and the temple rebuilt, and their families brought back together, God stands before them and says, I will give you salvation. Folks, whether you realize it or not, or whether I realize it or not, our greatest need is our need to be finally and forever saved. And so, if you're keeping an outline or following, uh, I'd like to write down points. The first point, and we're going to spend a long time on this point, is a promise of salvation. And the first thing to look at is the fact that our greatest need is to be finally and forever saved. Now the interesting thing is, if you hear, if you were to talk to the people of Israel at this time and you started talking to them about their need to be saved, they're probably going to be thinking about their need to be saved from the, the surrounding nations who are kind of eyeing in going, is this our time to get them? And yet God, though He's willing to address that, doesn't spend His time mostly there. He instead spends His time on their need to be saved from the wrath of God. Let me say that again. 
What God cares most about for them is their need to be saved from God. That sounds a little bit odd to put it that way, but here's why. These people had been disobedient over and over to the law of God and to God Himself, and they were now staring down the barrel of God's wrath. And God knows what's going to happen if He turns that wrath loose. And therefore, God is saying to them, your greatest need is to be saved from My wrath. And so, I tell you, standing before you, Clearly and lovingly, you, like me, have the greatest need you have is to be saved from the wrath of God because you, like me, are one who has sinned against God. And if something doesn't change, then you will also, like me, face the wrath of God. And so our diagnosis is the same as the diagnosis of the people in in Zechariah's time. They, the diagnosis is they are a group of people who right at that moment stand ready to face the wrath of God. And let me say, every one of us stands there. I've seen just in the past couple of weeks way too many examples of people's lives who if you'd have asked them on December the 1st of this year, I mean last year, what things were going to look like in January... They would not have answered, I will not be here because I will be dead. And there's too many of them for me to not be honest enough with every one of us and say, honest enough with myself to say, this is our massive need. Praise the Lord. Just like our diagnosis is the same as the people of Israel, praise God, our cure is also the same. That's the beauty of the Scriptures. They were saved the same way we will be saved. Let's read about it. Verse 7, And the Lord will give. (laughs) You could preach an entire sermon series on just that right there. The Lord will do what? He's going to give, right? We... We, we have a word that we use a lot in, in, in Christianity. We call it grace, right? And we've got big definitions for it and all that. Let me help you. It's just a gift. That's all grace is. It just means to get a gift. So when salvation comes, it says the Lord is going to do what? Give. There's no earning. There's no posturing. He's just going to give it. And the Lord will give salvation. Verse 8, And on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants. And I like in chapter 14, verse 3, he says this, The Lord will go out and fight against the nations as when He, has, as when he fights on a day of battle. There's a huge point here that he's making. When I give you salvation, it will be such that nobody else gets credit for it. Except for who? God alone. So we are those who stand with a massive need to be saved from the wrath of God because of our sin. And yet the incredible, spectacular news of the Scriptures is that we are those who are saved by God. Now you tell me any other religion that postures anything like that, that says anything on the lines of you need to be saved from God and you will be saved by God. That's the Christian Gospel. 
And then keep reading here as he describes it. So salvation comes by God. And now you're going to see that salvation begins with the outsiders. Oh, I love this. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first. And there's a reason here. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. So what's going on? Well... This is not a major stretch for us. Remember, Judah is the region and Jerusalem is the capital city. Let me say it again. Judah is the surrounding region, the whole region, and Jerusalem is the capital city. Where do you think the important people lived? In Jerusalem, in the city, right? That's just the way it works. And the people in the surrounding areas, the further you go out, the least important it got. Oh man, hear what God says. When I save you, I'm going to start with Jerusalem first? With the important people first? (laughs) Praise God. I'm telling you. It's an amazing gospel. He says, no, when I save, I'm going to start with the outsiders. With those who are the least important among you. And I'm going to gloriously and wonderfully save them. Why? So that nobody else, and he actually tells us, nobody else gets credit for this. I don't want you to say, see, our strongest people came up with this. Or they got saved because they were great people. I want you to say, it makes no sense to us. Had we done it, we'd have done it exactly the reverse. Only God can get credit. But let me tell you, that is the story of the Scriptures. The story of the Scriptures is God always starts with the outsiders first to save them. And let me tell you, we have great reason to rejoice about this. Because I'm imagining, like me, you were not born of the line of Abraham. That is, you are not a descendant Jew. But instead, you are a Gentile. I remember as a kid for the longest time just trying to figure out what is the difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And finally, one day when the definition hit me, all Gentile just means not Jew. That really, for me, was a major moment um, in, in understanding because I realized how important it must be to be a Jew if they give a name for not being one, right? It, well, in the Scriptures, this is the incredible This is the incredible message. This is the one that has Paul tripped out. As you read the New Testament, Paul over and over is going, he's saving the Gentiles first. He's saving the Gentiles first. He's saving the Gentiles first. That's the message of it. Peter gets really weirded out by this. Peter, they have to have a a huge counsel about it. I mean, it is the question of the New Testament. If He is Jesus, and He has called us to go to the Gentiles, what's going on? And they begin to look at the pages of Scripture and they see verses like this in Zechariah and they go, he's starting with the outsiders. So, listen to that. Now just listen to the sovereign control of God. And we'll read this in just a second at Romans 11. Here's the argument that Paul puts forward. Now just think about this. He says, God purposefully made it that the Jews would reject Him, His Speaking of Jesus, and crucify him in order that the Gentiles would have a shot at salvation. He planned before the foundations of the earth that he would put Jesus forward and that the Jews would look at him and say, No thanks. In order that you and I would even be included in the camp. 
Let me read you Romans chapter 11. That whole chapter is about this. But I, I like what Paul says here. He describes it this way, and this is just verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. <laughs> I do not want you to be aware of this mystery. That's Paul's way of describing this freak occurrence. right? Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And you and I, right now, are living in the until. And so, that's why the biblical priority for us is to go and tell every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, the outsiders are the outsiders, go tell them, because it's moving in. And praise God, according to Romans 11, we don't have time to work all this out, but if you want this all answered, you just sit down. Uh, Eddie later, he said, we'd be happy to explain it all. And then there's coming a time when the Jews will be saved. He has it in His plan. Like I said, Eddie will work all that out for you. Alright, that's the other thing. But let me, this is just a quick point of application to our young people especially. If we are a people, man, I wish I'd have lived this out better. I stunk at this at your age. Stunk at it. If I am a believer in Christ and I've been saved because I am an outsider, now follow that, then would it not make incredible sense for me to be one who lives my life to make sure that those on the outside are reached? In other words, would I not have spent, and I did, like a fool, I spent years trying to be on the inside. When everything about my life in Christ is the story of one who was on the outside and who was gloriously saved. So I beg you, I would love it to be said, I don't know much about those kids from Cornerstone, but I do know this, they reach the outsiders. You don't have to be cool. You just have to be reachable. And they'll come to you. That was not in the sermon, but I'm not going to charge you any extra for it. Um, I think that matters though. I really think that matters. Salvation is by God. Salvation comes to the outsiders. And salvation begins with Christ. Verse 8, "...in the house of David shall be like God..." like the angel of the Lord going before them. Whew! <laughs> it's so thick. What is he saying here? Well, when he says the house of David shall be like God, I think what he's saying is that the line of David shall be like God. So salvation is going to come through the line of David and the line of David is going to look like God. Who do you know who was God, who was born into the line of David, and who offers salvation. Jesus! Right? Right here on the pages, written 500 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. It's right there. It's going to come by Jesus. And He's going to be like a messenger. That's the, an angel of the Lord going before them. And if that, if you look at it and go, well, that seems a little bit of a stretch to me, Tim. Well, tell me if verse 10 feels like a lot of stretch to you. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Judah a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. 
So that when they, now listen to the language, when they, this is God talking, when they look at me, when they look at God, now hold on, on Him who they have pierced, so they are looking at God who they pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for any child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's coming a day, says Zechariah, when the house of Israel will look and go, Here's God. We pierced Him. We stuck Him. And He was God. And He came to save us. It's going to come. It's going to begin with Christ. So when... when in, in, that's no stretch there that that verse means that. Go turn and look in John chapter 19. He quotes the exact verse there to make sure we know that it connects. And then in chapter 13 verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David <laughs> and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. To do what? To cleanse them of all their sin and their uncleanliness. There's coming when Christ comes. He's going to open up a fountain and He's going to clean. A guy by the name of William Cowper, he was back in the 1800s, he's an Englishman, um, went to live with, uh, with a pastor by the name of John Newton. Now you know John Newton because he penned the words of Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader who came to Christ and later penned the words of Amazing Grace. William Cowper struggled with the faith for a long time and finally came to, to, to believe upon Jesus Christ. And one day was sitting out in, in a garden area with, there by the church where John Newton was a pastor and he got to thinking about all that he had done wrong and he was struggling in his soul with assurance. He's saying, how could God ever allow me in? And he started meditating upon the verse you and I just read. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. And he hears it say, On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for me. And praise God, he picked up his pen. And he gave us the words that Julie sang for us just last Sunday of one of the greatest hymns we have. There is a fountain, what? Filled with blood. Right? And that, we, he says, is where salvation comes from. It comes in and through Jesus Christ. And yet we would be amiss if we left it there. Salvation comes, begins with Christ, but it also will culminate with Christ. I want you to see that. 13, verse 1 and 2. And on that day... Uh, sorry, I think I just told you uh, 13, 1 and 2. Um, 14, 1 and 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets in the spirit of uncleanliness. So there's coming a day, Zechariah says, that I'm going to go into the land and I'm going to clear all the idols. That will be salvation. So there's great hope here. I don't know about you, but my life has not been cleared from all the idols. 
Unfortunately, I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, my heart doesn't just inventory idols, it makes them. So much so that he calls his heart uh, an idol factory. That he can just generate idols. I don't know about you, but that, that very much describes my heart. As soon as one idol is removed, give it a little time and another idol will begin to be generated. It's because I've been saved from the power of sin. It's got no power over me. If God calls me home right now, there's nothing that Satan can say on about my soul that will cause me any pain. But right now, I have not yet been fully saved from the presence of sin. That day is coming. And so we live in this weird, already saved, but not yet fully saved state, right? That's the struggle. That's where we are. That's where we need to find hope. So salvation begins with Christ and salvation culminates with Christ. Before we move off of this point, the promise of salvation, I just want you to hear very this summarized. In Zechariah, which was written 500 years before Christ walked the earth, I hope you see how clear it is that salvation is going to come, that it is going to come to the outsiders, that it is going to come by Christ, and that it will end with Christ. I hope and pray that as we walk through Zechariah, if anybody ever says to you something on the lines of, you know, the Gospel kind of begins in the New Testament, I hope it will take you a moment to gather your composure and say, begins where? The Gospel begins in Genesis chapter 1. And all Zechariah is doing is filling in for us what's happening. It's right there. It's as clear as it can be. That's the joy of the New Testament authors. All over the place, they're looking at it and going, Oh my! It's right there! The Gospel is not made up in the New Testament. The Gospel was God's plan from the beginning. Before He ever formed any one of us, He knew how He would save us. Amen? Alright, well, we got to move on. Um, I think the question then you look at is, well, what do we do in this already not yet period? How, how do we position ourselves? How do we live? These next two points are not going to go nearly as long as that one. Um, let me make two more points here. One is, there is a promise of provision. This point is easily made by the, the verse, I think. Chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living waters living waters, shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. In other words, it's going everywhere and it's never stopping on that day. That is, when Christ fully comes. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. Now we learned in our Sunday school lesson this morning that there's a promised king coming and that is Jesus Christ, right? Well, it was a promise given to David and here again we see once again there's a king coming who will be Lord. And when He comes, you will be fully provided for. There's so much here to say. I think probably the best couple of places to go. Remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus is dealing with the woman at the well and He tells her, uh, she says, uh, tell him about her thirst and Jesus says, I will give you water from whence you will what? Never thirst again. Because one who drinks of this, it brings up a spring and that spring is living water to the soul. The point is this. 
Jesus will provide for us satisfaction in everything we need. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 and 2 seems to sum this up completely of what it's going to look like in the end. Then, this is the very end of time, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and on the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so, what's going on? Well, in the end times, in, when the kingdom is brought to its fullness, who is going to provide for you everything you need? Jesus. Out of the throne of God, the Lamb of God, where Jesus is, there's going to be a river, and that river will feed everything from there. So what does that tell me as a believer today? Well, certainly it tells me to look forward to that. But I think there's something bigger it tells me. I think it tells me, go now there for this second, Tim, and look for provision there. Don't look elsewhere for satisfaction of your soul. Look to one and the one only, Jesus Christ. I really want to move on to verse 20 and 21. Because I think these, these two verses provide us a lot of help. There's a promise of salvation. There's a promise of provision. And there's a promise of sanctification. Now the word sanctification just means to be made holy. To be made holy. Listen to this. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And he's going to go on from there and describe basically everything is going to be described as holy. On that day, so when the kingdom finally comes, there is going to be on the bells of the horses going to be written, holy to the Lord. Now why does that matter? Well, if you remember in Exodus, when he's giving the uh, requirements for the, the high priest, what their garment should look like, do you remember they get a turban? It's a pretty cool turban. Um, they get a turban, and on the turban there's a plate put on it. Which they didn't really they, the metals they used there. They didn't have some of the metals that we have and the ways to refine them. So that would have been pretty heavy. I guess as that thing's chilling up on your head, that's going to get that's going to get a little heavy after a while. Um, never thought about that to right this moment. You probably wish I wouldn't have thought out loud. But anyway, um, it, it's going to have written on it, "Holy to the Lord." And that's the way they did. So if you're a priest, you walked in every, every time you walked into the, to the uh, temple, you wore your turban with this heavy thing on it, and it said, holy to the Lord. Now catch what Zechariah just said. <laughs> he said when the kingdom comes in His fullness, it's not going to just be on the head of the priest. The horses are going to have it written on them. Now, you and I are like, oh, sweet, that'd be really neat, that stallion going through the... They didn't think of horses like that. They didn't care for horses nearly like we care for horses, right? They look at a horse and go, nasty, I can't even eat the thing, right? So, they did not like horses. So, for them to be told that a horse is going to have written on it, holy to the Lord, is just sickening to them. And yet, in the kingdom, even the horse is going to have written on it, holy to the Lord. There are 
a dozen application points here, but I want to home in on one. Catch this. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, the uniform is holiness. The uniform of the kingdom of God is holiness. Oh, this has been helpful to my poor soul this week. If you don't like holiness, you are not going to like heaven. You just aren't going to like it. Because the uniform there is holiness. I mean, even the horses are holy in heaven. So if you don't like holiness, if it seems boring to you, if it seems to you like it just doesn't bring what you want it to bring in terms of enjoyment meter, then you are not going to like heaven. Let me try this analogy on you. A team has a uniform. So I just can't imagine a member of the Buffalo Bills, uh, the team that I try to follow. Um, but anyway, I cannot imagine that a player from there is ever sitting in the locker room and ever says anything to the coach like, you know, I wish we didn't have to wear this blue and red. I wish we could wear some ugly yellow and ugly maroon. Right? No, he doesn't say it because the coach is going to say what? Then go be a Washington Redskin. Right? In other words, there is a team that wears those ugly colors and it's not ours. Right? We have beautiful colors. So what? They'll never show up in the Super Bowl and win. But anyway, we have wonderful colors. That's our team uniform. You don't play for our team and go wear another uniform. We have a uniform. Folks, the uniform for the kingdom of God is holiness. That's what He wants. Those who are in the kingdom, those who love the kingdom, wear the team's uniform. We wear holiness. Jesus Himself hammered on this point. One of the most impressive places He does this is in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 22. He's just told a story about a king. And you think, you think the story is over actually because He tells a story. He says, there's a king who wants to invite all these people to the banquet and he invites all the important people and they reject him. So then He goes out and He sends word to His folks, go invite the unimportant people. And the unimportant people say, we're there. And you think, sweet, we got the point. And he makes this point in many other places. The point is, he's coming to the Jews first. They're saying no, so he's going to the Gentiles. And that, that is the point of that part. But then out of nowhere, he's like just throws you a curve. You're going, where did that come from? Let me, let me read this to you. You think it's over. Matthew chapter 2, 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. He didn't have anything to say. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him in the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Whew. Right after you think... Sweet, Jesus just said that He's going to not just save the Jews, but He's also going to save the Gentiles. Wonderful. Man, he throws a major curveball. And He says, but those who are in the kingdom will wear the kingdom's clothes. They're going to be dressed in holiness. 
And if they're not dressed in holiness, then they need to ask themselves, is this really where I belong? Am I really a part of the kingdom? Now, I think this is incredibly important, especially in the Bible Belt. I've often heard statements such as, I'm saved, but I just don't follow everything real strict, you know? Or, I believe in Jesus, but I think people should still be able to do blank and fill it in. Or, you know what, you just shouldn't judge me. Let me be crystal clear because I would be lying to you if I told you anything different. The Scriptures are clear. In the kingdom, those who love the kingdom love holiness. That does in the in the, the uniform of the kingdom is holiness. Those who are part of the kingdom put on holiness. Now that doesn't mean there's not going to be some wardrobe malfunctions. There are going to be some times when we don't dress like holy people. We don't act like holy people. That's called stumbling. That's that will happen. But I'm going to tell you what, if you don't like the garment of holiness, you're in the wrong camp. So return to the team analogy. It's always a trick for me when a team when a when a player changes teams. It always weirds me out to see them with another uniform on. So this year when Peyton Manning, who I really like, um, he he uh, I think they did they play last night? Did they lost? Poor guy. Um, but anyway, um, they uh, I really like Peyton Manning until I follow him real close. Um, he uh <laughs> He, when he went from the Indianapolis Colts to the Denver Broncos, for the first couple of games, I just kept looking at it going, that just doesn't look right. That's just strange, right? And you've seen that with other players. How, Richard, I'm sure he about had a conniption the first time he saw Brett Favre in a, in a Minnesota Vikings uniform. How in the world, right? That looks odd. Let me tell you something. It doesn't look nearly as strange as it would if a player walked out on the field trying to wear two uniforms. You think it looks strange enough to see Brett Favre dressed up in a Minnesota Vikings uniform. Imagine him trying to wear both. Green Bay shirt and top, helmet and, and, and Vikings bottoms. That's going to look real strange. It is no stranger than a person who calls himself a child of God trying to wear the uniform of holiness that God asked for and also trying to dress in the uniform of the world. It doesn't make any sense. And so, I love you enough to challenge you. Is my life being dressed in the uniform of the kingdom? Or does my life look a lot more like the uniform of the world? And I'll tell you, honestly... Is a church, we have to love each other here. Around us, is there is a major, major, there is major, major confusion going on about what Christianity is. We live in, a, especially here in the South, so many people have grown up around church, in church, and around Christianity, and that for them is what it is. And yet, unfortunately, our, the people of God look very much like the people of the world. It is confusing. It's confusing to the church, and it's really confusing to the world. The best thing we can do as a church 
to love one another is to say, I love you enough as a brother and sister that I'm going to say, if you are part of me and we are part of this church together, then I'm going to ask you to look like the kingdom. And I love you enough to admit that I don't always look like the kingdom. But I hope we have a process by which we hold each other accountable. It is the best thing we can do for one another. And it is the clearest thing we can do in terms of articulating for a lost world what it means to be in the church of God. I'll close with this. If you'd ask a, 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 a Baptist, take 150 years ago, um, and you'd ask a Baptist, why do you believe that you are saved? You'd have gotten a very different answer, I think. He would have probably answered this. Now hold on, listen to this all the way through. He would have probably said something like, because I'm a member of the church. So-and-so Baptist church. Now hold on, don't judge him too quickly here. You're saying, well, then he just didn't get the gospel. Because he, I mean, we all know being uh, on the role of a church doesn't save you. Yeah, but hold on. See, 150 years ago, he certainly would have understood the gospel. He could have articulated for you and he'd have said, oh, wait, wait, wait. You are asking me how I was saved. Oh, I was saved by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. But if you ask me how I know I'm saved, then my name's on the name, on the roll of that church. And see, at our church, if your name is on the roll, then that means that you are a brother and sister in Christ who actively participates in worship. You're a brother and sister in Christ who is not involved in unrepentant sin. And you're a brother and sister in Christ who submits to the leadership and the teaching of the Word of God. Otherwise, you're not on the role of the church. Do you see how much help more helpful that is? And there's two different questions. Do not hear me say that you should think you're saved because your name is on the role of church or that's the way you're saved. That's false. We just saw how we're saved. Wouldn't it be beautiful if our church roles were such that any person could find some comfort and some assurance by saying, well, I'm on the roll and we really love each other enough to be careful to keep, it, keep the roll clean so it means something. Why? Because we believe that the uniform of the kingdom is holiness and we should put it on and hold each other to it. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I wouldn't know how to preach if it were not for Your Word. It is an incredible gift. I'm still amazed <laughs> that some guy writes something down 26 centuries ago and You give it to Your people as bread today. Lord, what an amazing, amazing truth. Lord, I pray that we as a body of believers would be enamored with the salvation, with the gospel and the salvation that it brings. I pray that it would just amaze us. Lord, I do pray. I pray that we would love one another in active love, know one another, be known by one another. Lord, I desperately need a community of people around me who truly know me, who can call me to account, who can hold me steady, and Lord, who love me enough to say, Tim, 
that's not the way that we dress around here. That's not the garment of holiness that we wear. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we try to become that type of church. And Lord, I pray that our witness would speak to a watching world. And Lord, I pray that you would use it uh, to, to further your kingdom and make, and make Christianity uh, look more like what you describe in your word. We ask all these things to you, our Father, through Christ our Lord, to be applied by your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.